The Newground Susie and Wally Marks Trailblazer Award celebrates people who have created new possibilities and paths by stepping into their discomfort and the ambiguity that comes with facing adversity. We are honored now in 2021 to celebrate Brie Lescota, the executive director of the Martin Marty Center at the University of Chicago, and Reverend Dr. Gary Mason of Rethinking Conflict. Bree and Gary have advised Newground over the years and been a critical part of Newground's success. As part of their award, they both agreed to sit down together and have a real conversation about the moment that we are in and how to navigate it. They started with the question, what personally drives you to exist in this space? I have inhabited a lifetime now, since I was a little boy, contested spaces. Uh, The kind of Northern Irish conflict, as you and I know, those normal brands of chaos of land, identity and religion always bubbling around below the surface, many, many times above the surface. And I guess something I learned in the last couple of years, just a colleague actually in Florida talked about a TED talk, which actually I hadn't seen with the title, which I'm sure you've seen, Beware of the Danger of the Single Narrative. And I guess like many people growing up in contested spaces, I knew one narrative. It was my narrative. It was undoubtedly carved in stone and it was the right narrative. It's interesting when I look back now, I breathe through the kind of corridors of time. Uh, I went initially to a primary school in our Irish space, age four to age 11. And then began, I guess, what you call in that US context, a high school. Uh, which here begins at 11 through to age 18. It was an all-boys school, and when I look back on my school photographs of my boys' class, I go, dead, 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 dead. You know, a group of like 25, 30 boys. And so many people that got caught up in this uh, bloody sectarian cockpit, we ended up with a bloodbath here for almost... 30 years. And I mean, Northern Ireland is a very tiny space. I mean, I'm conscious I'm speaking into United States with a population of 330 million plus. I mean, during the conflict when I was growing up, I mean, the population was 1.5 million. But over those 30 years, you know, we had 30,000 people went through our penal system, 36,000 shooting incidents, 16,000 bombings, and almost 4,000 dead. And I do remind American Audiences there, Brie, if if this conflict in my space had taken place in the United States over a 30-year period, you would have had 700,000 dead in the United States, Uh, 6 million political prisoners, 7 million shootings, 3 million bombings. And I guess, I suppose, what drives me as a human being, I really don't want to dump all this debris of toxic religion and toxic politics on another generation. As I look at my kids, the lives they live are very different to the life I lived when I was growing up as a kid in the 70s. Like in 1972, Brie, we had a terrorist incident every 40 minutes, like every 40 minutes. So what motivates me or what compels me or what drives me is I suppose the belief that it can be different and to try to look at some of the things we've learned very painfully, the things we got right, the things we got wrong, continuing my work in the Irish space, 
but also in the United States and also in the Palestinian-Israeli theater. Uh, the Irish peace process is not utopia, but it has been, thankfully, despite its fragility, one of the most successful peace processes in the last 50 to 70 years. And I suppose in tennis terms, I'm returning to serve, Brie. So tell me, my good friend, <laughs> what personally drives you to exist in these contested, messy spaces in which we live? You know, it's it's such an interesting question to me because I don't think that we have much of a choice. But like, it, it's sort of the nature of human existence, right? The, we're a sloppy, messy, complicated project. Um, and so what do we have, what tools do we have at our disposal to make sense of that? Well, we could either choose a politics of domination, right, which is what everybody um, chooses or has chosen for them, or we could choose a politics of liberation, right, and flourishing. And so it seems just like a really pretty basic choice in in the options of what is possible for us to exist as humans, why would we not choose the, the better version? It, it, like, it boggles my mind because I take for granted the notion that we live with conflict, right? Like conflict is baked into our system. It's, it's a feature, it's not a bug. So how we navigate it and what we do with it is entirely within our control. Um, and that we would choose something other than a politics of flourishing is just so unsettling to me, right? Why, why would we choose anything different? And so, you know, the choice to exist in this space is the, is the choice to live with some sort of um, pragmatic hope that the world could be different, or they'll just give in to some sort of despair that these cycles of violence that have plagued us forever are inevitable. And I just don't, I just don't think they are. I think our differences are inevitable, but I don't think the violence that comes with them is. And so, if we could, in a sort of prefigurative way, begin to act as if we have inherited a better world, um, then maybe we'll make it along in the in the process. And so I think I, over the course of my life, have developed a sense of um, hyper agency as a response to what is some very difficult circumstances. And that sense of agency, to me, is how you move forward. It, it makes it it makes it possible to feel as though while everything is not within your control, there are many things that are within your control, including how you respond, right? Sartre says freedom is what freedom is what you do with what's been done to you. And I've always taken great um, solace in that, that no matter what the circumstances are, that freedom is your response. Uh, and so I think anybody can have a choice to choose a response that is more uplifting, right? That drags us further in the direction of what we want to be rather than pulls us, you know, much further into the direction of what um, what we are. And so I, I just really, I, I, I just can't imagine, I can't imagine living in a world full of people who don't think that we have more potential than what is in front of us right now. Like that would lead me to great despair. And so I think being in conversation with you, being in uh, a part of things like Newground remind me of the enormous potential and possibility um, in the face of really overwhelming circumstances. And that to me is 
there is no choice but to live there because that's that's the only place that you can sustain yourself. But as you've looked back on some of the more difficult things that you have had to endure, Gary, what have been some of the most challenging moments for you to navigate um, this path? Yeah, you know, interestingly, Bri, you think my natural answer would be when the conflict was on. But interestingly, cementing the peace has been so, so difficult. Uh, George Mitchell, uh, who many of your listeners will know tonight, the American uh, Democratic Senator from Maine, uh, was the chairperson for what became known as the Good Friday Agreement, which was our peace agreement signed on April the 10th, 1998. And I don't think it was a throwaway comment by George Mitchell, Bree, but when eventually the signatures were done, he said to those gathered in the room, if you think getting this agreement was difficult, implementing it will be even more difficult. And as I talked to you, 23 years plus after that momentous event, maintaining and bedding down the peace with the debris of this place. I mean, one historian talks about the sores of Irish history. And even though some of them are healing, I mean, probably when you and I were a lot younger and we fell off our bike and you scuffed your leg and the sore was there. Mm, you had the tendency to pick at it. Oh, I want to get this healed really, really quickly. And if I pick off this scab, I know definitively it's going to get better. I mean, even in our British Irish space, we still have the tendency to want to pick that scab. And so bedding down that piece has been so, so difficult. The release of prisoners was difficult. The reform of policing was difficult. Uh, weapons decommissioning was difficult. And even after the signing of the Good Friday Agreement, I mean, I ended up negotiating three internal feuds with non-state actors uh, where there was bloodshed. And you assumed that once the Good Friday Agreement was signed, Utopia was going to come and realising that it hasn't come. So we have this kind of phrase in Ireland where we say peace comes dropping slowly. And I guess just maintaining that, maintaining relationships, Brexit, uh, to use uh, Star Wars language, was a disturbance in the force. None of us saw that coming. And the aftermath of that has been very, very difficult. It has polarised people. It has made identity stronger when the whole concept of the Good Friday Agreement was uh, to reduce uh, that concept of uh, ethno-nationalistic identity. I, mean, I often say, look, there's nothing wrong in identity in itself. But when we combine identity with ethno-nationalistic superior identity, identity becomes incredibly toxic. And unfortunately, Brexit has done that in this space. And so even this last, what, June 2016, I mean, the last four or five years, I've been involved facilitating numerous conversations, trying to make sure what's been a successful, but also a fragile peace process continues to stay in course. And I suppose, Bray, as you reflect back, I guess there've been those challenges, those moments when you've probably said, as I have, being honest, why did I do this? <laughs> Tell me about some of, of those, Bray, why did I do this moments? <laughs> I can I can tell you one. I was on my way to um, an East African country, 
and I was going to work with uh, a number of youth there, um, many who had been um, in uh, the so first soccer stadium that Al Shabaab blew up. So its first its first uh, forays into in transnational terrorism was in a soccer stadium in Kampala uh, while kids were watching the um, while kids were watching the World Cup, and Al Shabaab blew up that soccer stadium. It was sort of profoundly cynical act. Um, so I was going to work with some youth who were putting uh, society and identity back together for themselves. And I was going to be on the anniversary of that, uh, which just happened to be a coincidence. And as I was reading about some of the organizations, I saw that they had put out, one of them had um, shared a statement from uh, a cleric, a religious leader, that um, there was no such thing as spousal rape, that it was just a made up thing and that men should be nice to their wives, but that this was a sort of, um, this was just a made up category. And it struck me in the gut that here I was going to leave my family, travel, you know, it takes about 32 hours for me to get there door to door and invest in these young people who I actually deeply believe that they needed um, support and investment, but were putting out messages that were profoundly antithetical to every ounce of who I was. And I didn't really know how to reconcile that. I didn't know how to, like, what choice do you have in that? Do I say, okay, I'm going to do this, but I'm going to pocket my concerns about the fact that you're advocating for, in my opinion, sexual violence against women, or do I uh, confront them about it? Or do I just say, I can't do this because this is a bridge too far. And I really wrestled and struggled with it. And I had a friend uh, who was part of this group, this woman who's a great peacemaker named Manal Omar. And I said, Manal, I don't know what I can do in the face of this because this is it's not just a like difference of opinion. This is a profoundly different way to understand what's happening in the world and what is right and good and what is not. And she said, if you don't talk to them about it, who will? And I thought, oh, damn it. <laughs> like, that was not the answer that I wanted. Uh, I, I wanted something else. I wanted permission to not engage with it. And I thought, oh, how fantastic. Um, to be confronted with my own hypocrisy and discomfort, right? Like I, I didn't think there was a way through this. And I just thought, you know, there, that's, there's my limit. I've reached my limit and, I, and uh, that's what it is. And so I ended up actually having a conversation with them and talking with them about it. And, um, you know, they came to understand my pers perspective. Now, I don't know if I feel okay about this whole thing because in the end, they understood what I was saying and, um, you know, removed the posts and were apologetic. But I don't know if I feel good about it because um, my side was victorious or not, right? Or if I just, um, but so I don't, I don't know how, even to this day, how that fits. But I do know that uh, when Manal said to me, if you don't do this, who will? I, uh, I, that was something I had never had to deeply reconcile as much as I did in that moment. And um, I think it gave me a lot more empathy for
for what it's like to not just have, these are not differences of opinion. These are differences of existence and humanity and dignity. And that is a, it's, it's not an easy thing that we ask people to reconcile. Um, and uh, so I think that that was one of the harder, I mean, just a small, it's just a small instance, but it was something that profoundly shook me um, because I realized how deep the stakes were in all of this. Um, and so I, it makes it hard for when people have retracted into different sides to engage with them. It was hard for me, but Gary, you spent your life figuring out how to get people to engage, especially when they've kind of calcified into different sides. So how do you do that? And who do you engage when the sides are so polarized and, and um, calcified? Yeah. It's interesting, Brie, way, way back, I guess. I mean, I was ordained in the Christian ministry way back in May, 1987, which is a lifetime ago now in many ways. But just a few years after that, I was asked to do some work in South Africa with this bridge building encounter. It was September 1991. I mean, I was very young. And I picked up this quote from a South African academic. And I mean, I've kind of tattooed it on my skull, I guess, ever since where he says, you know, reconciliation is no cheap matter. Uh, it does not come about by simply papering over deep-seated differences. Uh, reconciliation presupposes confrontation. I think I'd like to say in there are managed confrontation. But without that, we do not get reconciliation, but merely a temporary glossing over of differences. Uh, he kind of suggests the running sores of society cannot be healed with the use of a sticking plaster or a band-aid. Uh, reconciliation presupposes an operation, a cutting to the very bone without anesthesia. And the reason for that is because the infection is not just on the surface. I mean, as he suggests in the South African context, the abscess of hate, uh, mistrust, fear between black and white, nation and nation has to be sliced open. So these things are painful. And I think in your space in the United States, in my space, uh, people don't want to talk about our historical debris and our historical baggage. It's almost, can people not just get over it? Uh, the answer is no. I mean, it's a bit like saying to people when they do say that to me, uh, have you ever experienced anyone who's a recovering alcoholic? And the verbally most people say, of course, Gary, of course. And do you ever say to them, can you not just get over it? And automatically say, no, of course, they're scarred. I say, well, the trauma of US history, the trauma of history in the Middle East, the trauma of European history, I guess, Brie, the trauma of human history is we're all traumatized in so, so many different ways. And I think just drawing alongside people, there's a quotation there by a, was a New York journalist, uh, goes something like this. He says, you know, in other words, to disagree well, you must understand well. Uh, you have to read deeply, he suggests, listen carefully, watch closely. You need to grant your adversary, he suggests, moral respect. Uh, give him the intellectual benefit of doubt. Have sympathy for their motives and participate emphatically with his line of reasoning. 
and you need to allow for the possibility that you might yet be persuaded of what he has to say. So I try to go into these contested spaces while not necessarily agreeing with the narrative, but trying to understand what shaped this person as a human being. And I suppose, as I look back at my context, there were 30,000 people went through our penal system. Many men of my generation and some women too. But sociologists tell me categorically, they had been born in LA, Vancouver, Berlin, Rio de Janeiro, Paris, 90% of them never would have been in prison. So I'm going to ask the question, what was the context in my space that made those people act the way they did? Toxic religion, toxic politics. That's not justifying their actions, but it's trying to help me understand why did these people make what I would say were wrong choices in the heat of the moment and what contributed to that. And I guess what underlines that statistic, all those people who have since been released from prison, those 30,000, only 2% have reoffended. So it's actually saying there was something here. I mean, somebody tongue-in-cheek once said in the late 1960s, someone did not fly over Northern Ireland sprays off with some form of lunatic gas and we all woke up and said let's start killing each other people don't naturally turn into killers overnight there's language there's words there's linguistic violence etc etc that unfortunately makes people make wrong choices and i guess for you brie and myself is how do we redirect gently graciously how do we give alternatives and I guess that's part of our role. I mean, tell me about ways that you've tried to provide alternatives for people who at times you just scratch your head and ask, what is possessing you? But something obviously is. You know, I, um, I often think that people's worlds make sense to them, even if they don't make sense to anyone else. And so I think that that is the basis on which you move forward. I would say, though, that I don't always agree with how people make sense of their world, right? And I, it's hard for us to hold that intention, right? There's a lot of tension that exists in these kinds of environments where we think if we understand, it means that we um, deem appropriate. And I've, so we have to be able to understand something without agreeing to it or agreeing with it. Um, and that is a very hard thing for us to do because we think if it makes sense, then it might be good. And if it doesn't make sense, then it is bad. But things can make sense that are still bad. Right? Things, that can, things can um, be good and not make sense, right? Those things are not tied together. Um, so I think that's the first thing. The other is really to know my own limits. There are things that I am not able to engage on. And I think what happens now in our society is that when we say it's we don't like this or we shouldn't do this or we're un, we're unwilling to do a certain thing that we don't leave open the possibility that someone else needs to fill that role so i remember talking with somebody and it was uh, around a sort of race and gender conflict and this person said i just don't want to do this work like i don't want i we shouldn't spend time educating this group about another group's experience I said that that's legitimate. It's totally legitimate that you don't want to do that. And it might be that we need someone to do that. 
So how do you say I'm unwilling to do this without making it impossible for someone else to do it? And so that's the part of this that I found so troubling over the last two decades or so. Is that when I first started doing this work, you know, I was a, the only non-Jew at a Jewish seminary. I was writing on Muslim and Jewish relations. And people sort of treated that with a kind of inherent curiosity, right? Like, oh, that's interesting. Tell me more about that. And over the last couple of decades, that's moved into a space where it's created a sense of, um, of suspicion, right? Oh, that's interesting. And it's not followed up with, tell me more about that. It's followed up with this sort of empty space because we're not sure what to make of it. And so the idea that we don't have curiosity in our conversations for why or what makes it so or how, um, and that we're confronted with this um, instead of curiosity with a form of suspicion, I think is a, is a internally unforced error, a form of cultural violence that we're doing to ourselves. Right, we're foreclosing some of the great avenues we have in our minds, in our society, which is some level of curiosity, um, which can be the beginning of a lot of great exploration. So I think that notion that curiosity really does matter uh, without having to give up on your values, but just trying to understand the world as someone else sees it. You cannot help anybody change. You cannot help anybody's horizons be broadened if you don't understand the way that they understand themselves in the world as they are. And it's just a fool's errand. I mean, it, it, it makes dialogue into or, or engagement into another form of, of domination, right? If we don't do that. And I think that that's the thing that we need to start with. And then a prof like just a, a, a real sense of self-knowledge about what you can and cannot do. There are conversations that I just can't be part of. I'm not, capable of them. Uh, there are roles that I cannot play and I shouldn't play. And so you have to have at least some notion of your own limitations and then also keep open the possibility that there are other people out there in the world who are not limited in the ways that you are and that they have a role to play. And so we have to resist that kind of narcissistic impulse that the only thing that we like is people who sound like us, right? The more that I like you is the degree to which you are like me. And that, that runs really counter to what is a fundamental truth of our existence, which is that we're different. You and I are different. We have different skills. We have different perspectives. And what we now have enabled ourselves to do is say that if you are not like me, that, that that's a threat. And that that threat, it can include that I can use any of the resources at my disposal to destroy you. And that can be on very small. What I find so remarkable right now is that that is on really small, ultimately, political differences, differences of tactic rather than goal, that we will see that those is such existential threats that destruction of the other person, right, in whatever ways that means, but metaphorical or actual, is on the table, right? That that's how shallow our ethical mandates are for how we treat each other. And so I think that that creates a lot of uh, difficulty with how we engage, because we're not just engaging to reach across a divide on one side. We also have to reach back into our own groups that are um, saying that that reaching across the divide is a problem and 
that you need to be pulled further in a direction. And so the stressors are on both sides of that. Um, and so I don't really know where that leaves us when we're trying to build across these kinds of divides, that there is so much skepticism and there's so much resistance. Are, are, do you find ways that you can keep building in the midst of this, what seems like an increasingly toxic environment to do this work? It's funny, Brand Stevenson, who many people know, the, the kind of author of Just Mercy and, and the movie there as well, he had a great quotation there, Brie, in one of his uh, TED Talks where he says, when we get close, uh, we hear things that can't be heard from afar. We see things that can't be seen. And sometimes that makes the difference, he suggests, between acting justly and unjustly. And a lot of my work has been bringing people together whose political narratives are very, very different, uh, who see their constitutional futures as very, very different, but just creating what we call listening circles or spaces for understanding. So I'm saying to people, I'm not asking you to agree. I'm just asking you to try to understand. And I mean, Goscali, academic, you know, says quite categorically that he still believes that storytelling, and he even suggests that science has proven that storytelling is one of the most powerful mechanisms for bringing about change. And interestingly, the way I sort of illustrate that is kind of rewinding the DVD and all our listeners' lives and in our lives, that yours doesn't have to go back as far as mine, but, you know, visualizing we were kids and you were kind of sitting in your pajamas and your mom or dad or grandparents or aunt or uncle came to your bedside and your head was on the pillow. And Brie, they said four magic words. Once upon a time. And I know your eyes lit up and my eyes lit up because I wanted to hear the once upon a time story. So I guess I said over the years, a lot of my work has been creating once upon a time moments. And then just asking people, if you had have experienced or been shaped by this narrative, even though you profoundly disagree with it, can you tell me what choices you may or may not have made? It's just trying to create that humanizing, you know, as, you know, as Abraham Joshua Shell, one of your own uh, great religious leaders said, you know, dehumanization precedes genocide. It's trying to create spaces to humanize the other. One of his other great quotations was, it was, it was words, not machines, that created Auschwitz. And so as I look at your space at the moment, to quote another uh, Jewish academic who sadly died at the, well, nine months ago, uh, Jonathan Sachs, where Sachs uses this phrase, linguistic violence. Uh, and I look at the US at the moment, I look at my space in relation to the Brexit and border polls and Northern Ireland protocols and sea borders. I look at spaces in Europe. And linguistic violence seems to be politically at an all-time high. And then we wonder why people on the ground are reacting in very adversarial ways when they disagree. I mean, as you look at your own space there, as you look at the, the skeptics, resistance, why are you doing this? I just want to stay with my own tribe, Brie. Leave me alone. I shop here. I worship here. I really don't want anything to do with the other. I mean, if you look at the US, 
I mean, what in your work, let alone globally, how do you bring these competing narratives even into the same room? Yeah, I, it's, um, I think it's a task bigger than myself um, in, in every way. Uh, I don't know that you start with the skeptics. Yeah. Right? There's a lot right now of people will say that if it's not good for everything, then it's good for nothing, right? That if it doesn't solve every problem, then it's not good at all. And I think that that is a form of self-limitation. And so people will say, oh, you're, you know, you're just preaching to the choir. And it's like, no, the choir is having choir practice. Yeah. That's how you get a good choir. Um, and so the notion that we have to do the hardest work first and only is, I think, a real problem. I think we need to give people places where they feel safe and comfortable, that there is psychological and relational and material safety to understand who they are before they start to understand who another group is. And so I'm not sure that the only work or the, even the most important work is to bridge some of these strong divides. I think a lot of the work is the internal work to get us back into the practice of what it means to exist with each other um, and to be able to contain some to, to contain some differences, some differences that, you know, the, the problem with talking about things like rhetorical violence is that we don't actually have a good lens for discerning what is violence and what is different. Um, and that makes it a really, that makes the idea of rhetorical violence itself something that can be weaponized because then it takes every difference to be a form of existential threat as opposed to actually it being a difference. And so it makes it for it makes it even and on one hand it's a really useful tool of understanding how you go from dehumanization and de degradation to getting to you know political violence to getting to things as extreme as genocide and then another it can also become a catch-all for the way that we refuse to navigate or hold any differences that don't have our words reflected back at us. And so that's where I think we've got a lot of work to do. Um, but I, I, you know, I think that before we reach out, we have to look within and that there's a lot of individual and intra-group work that needs to happen so that people can um, be a good partner in conflict, right? You only make peace with your enemy. You don't make peace with your friends. You just exist with your friends. And so the notion that somehow all of the preconditions that need to be met, basically the preconditions for any conflict right now uh, that need to be met before negotiation are, you have to agree with me. But you know that that might be an outcome, but that is never a precondition. It's never a precondition that you sit down and decide that you're the same before you negotiate some sort of agreement. Like a negotiation is a tool to navigate profound differences. Right, and everybody wins and everybody loses in that process. Uh, but hopefully, it's sustainable enough that people can move forward um, and they can put a larger picture into place. But I just think it's really remarkable that now 
we've mistaken the outcomes for preconditions. And in effect, we've made it impossible to sit down with anybody who's different than us because the mere act of sitting down is seen as a form of political violence or betrayal. And that makes it very difficult. I mean, I, like, I'm, I'm not saying anything that you don't know, Gary, you know this firsthand, um, but it provokes rage from people, a, a rage of betrayal. And that, you know, that happens across a variety of big and small uh, symbolic and real political issues. We see rage happening right now across the United States. There was just an anti-vaccine mandate protest on the corner around from my house. So what do we do with that sense of simmering rage that's boiling over into all of these issues that make them almost entirely inevitable? Yeah. I'm sometimes asking you know, what, what people's fears actually are. And you know, I've often thought, Brie, and, and all this here, and I think you've rightly said, you know, my discipline or your discipline academically does not have a totality on this. And I've often tried to say, think of these things for peace building, reconciliation, conflict transformation. You know, we need a kind of multidisciplinary approach to this. I, mean, I remember a number of years ago, I was asked to go to a, a kind of a conversation over five days in Jerusalem. And it was being put together by, by two very skilled lawyers, one from the Hebrew University, one from a leading university in London. My background's in psychology, theology, negotiation, conflict transformation. So law is not my world. And I was really concerned that this was, the kind of ethos of this was going to be dominated by law. But they were clever. I mean, they had theologians in the room, historians, philosophers, psychologists, wide range of people. And that's what made that so different. And I remember a colleague of mine once saying that, you know, the law cannot heal. America will never be healed by the law any more than my space will be healed by the law. We need the law, but the law is not a therapy. I mean, the law can, I guess, recreate a space, but the reality is in your space and my space, I mean, law and fact are actually weak when you're dealing with powerful emotions. Like you have mentioned, fear, rage, and how do we create spaces to allow that to spill out more? And what does that actually look like? How do we create some inclusivity where people feel they're actually being listened to and listened to well, rather than just continually dismissed? And on both sides. And, you know, I know in my times, you know, speaking in the United States, in different spaces, people have said, uh, don't mention Biden or Trump in this space at all. So people don't want to address their differences. You know, I think in religious settings, and I understand religious leaders are, are terrified that they're literally going to send their, their church or their synagogue or their mosque ripping right down the middle. So we just pretend this isn't happening. Uh, with the result and effect, nothing gets done. And I often say, Bray, as I look at my life and, and, and your life too, most of my relationships work. I mean, my marriage, if I use that as an example, my marriage works because it's based on compromise, not domination. So very simply put, if I dominate my partner, my kids, my grandkids, 
the relationship's going to implode because no one wants to be dominated. But if it's based in compromise, uh, disagreement, healthy disagreement, trying to find a middle ground. I suppose one of the things about the, the Good Friday Agreement, which was not flawless, and it's still a work in progress, it tried to create a win-win situation for both sides. So simply, not everyone got what they wanted. Certain people, no, prisoners cannot be released. No, no, we're not removing Articles 2 and 3 from the Irish government's constitution over the northern part of Ireland. But they were removed. So people realised that this deal is going to be sellable. Compromise was called for. The problem is in your space and at the moment in my space, compromise has become a dirty word. But many of the people that are against compromise, their lives exist within a family unit. Many of them, not all of them, based on compromise. And yet we won't allow those principles that shape us relationally to spill into the public space. I need to ask, why? Why not? I mean, how do you see that? you know, looking in on this on a daily basis. <laughs> You're just in mute at the moment, Brie. Don't worry. Someone once said, Brie, in a humorous, <laughs> somebody once said in a humorous note there at the end of 2020, something we have never said in our lives until 2020 arrived was, you're in mute. The quotation of 2020 and 2021. <laughs> Yeah, you'd think after a year and a half, I would have gotten uh, used to it, right? Um, old habits die hard. I, it's really remarkable to me that we uh, have improperly defined and calibrated what strength is. Um, that we see strength as not compromising, of not changing, of not evolving. And what a what a silly thing! What what. You know, the idea that to never change your mind, to be dug in is a form of strength as opposed to being flexible and incorporating new information and changing and broadening your perspective. That those are and being able to be in relationship with people and to use things like diplomacy rather than domination, that those are things that we don't value culturally. Um, that we have a sort of politics of also vulgarity, right? That what what is really wrapping our attention right now is the most vulgar thing that we can put out. And, you know, some, uh, I can't remember which scholar, but a, a scholar talks about the idea of algorithmic authority, right? So what the algorithm uh, promotes then becomes its own uh, form of, capital, reputational uh, authority capital that can be yielded. And so how do you how do you gain algorithmic authority? By doing the things that are the most vulgar, the most eye-catching. They aren't the best things for us, right? They might actually be the worst things for us. But the attention that you get from being involved in something that is more vulgar or obscene, and I don't mean, you know, in a narrow sense, I mean, in the broadest sense, that that's that's what we're giving our attention to um and then that's what has authority over us um those are the the forms that we learn to look for um leadership from that that that's remarkable right we we don't actually have to do it that way we've chosen to or we've chosen to from 
a sense of inaction in ourselves. Um, and I think that more than just compromise, I imagine that your relationships are actually built on respect, right? That it takes a lot of respect to be able to engage in compromise um, because you have to respect the other person's full personhood to see them as being really uh, capable of engaging in the world in a way that's different than yours. So how do you address radicalization or people becoming radical uh, that are based on either real or perceived losses in status or losses in respect or, you know, that there's a power differential? How do you address any of this in the midst of, of conflict, not in a sort of negotiation table, but when conflict is so hot? I remember this one theologian said, you know, you should never have a idea of God that you couldn't say in the face of a burning child. And I said, why on earth would you have an idea of God in the face of a burning child? Why wouldn't you get a bucket of water? <laughs> that maybe there is a limitation to some of these modes and we need to be able to engage them. But in the midst of a hot conflict, right, where people's lives are on the line, it's a very difficult, it's a, it's a hard thing to espouse some of these ideals. So how do you, how do you do that when de-escalation is the most important thing that we could get to so that we could get people to take a breath? and then come to something better. A couple of things around that, Brie. In the early 1990s here, uh, we had what we called a mutually hurting stalemate. So basically, violence was reduced, but we were still killing each other. But people slowly began to realize that we can stay at stalemate, or we can look for key leadership and a number of other factors to try to slowly move us out of this malaise that we've been in, not just for 30 years, but for centuries. I think sometimes getting out of your own space is incredibly helpful. Learning, I mean, I have learned a lot. I mean, the United States has shaped my life in so, so many ways. Uh, I've learned from so many people, people like yourself, many other friends. I've hosted thousands of students, of religious leaders, uh, of NGOs, of academics here, as I've done from the Israeli-Palestinian theatre as well. And I had a group there, interestingly, Brie, just here, both Palestinians and Israelis, but two weeks ago, yeah, two weeks ago, for a five to six day block. And I mean, the first evening was depressive. Honestly, I mean, I, I felt like going home and crunching Prozac, to be honest, after listening to them. Uh, no hope, complete despair. There's no way through this. We're condemned to this. Like they're in their 20s and 30s. So it was like, they're like my kids in many, many ways. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I was saying to them, and I've had a thousand Israelis and Palestinians in Belfast and Dublin over the last 10 years. And I often ask them, you know, what lessons do you learn from the Irish peace process, despite its fragility? And they tell me five things. So very briefly, I'll not drag it out. They say political leadership is essential to achieving peace. And really what they're meaning, Brie, in your space, in my space and in their space is that leaders on all sides, not just one side, must sincerely believe that change is preferable to the status quo and be willing to take the risk to achieve that peace. 
Second thing they highlight, they see the kind of desire that evolved here in the early 1990s to break away from that cycle of violence to save future generations of the horrors of conflict. That emerged in both sides. But what emerged interestingly, and I don't think this is emerging in your space at the moment, the desire for a better future actually encouraged leaders to take risks face down accusations of betrayal from within their own communities to achieve peace. And Israelis and Palestinians say to me, every time they're here, I know what's coming. You don't understand, Gary. I go, what do I not understand? There's no trust. I say, do you really think the first time religious leaders like myself began to engage with those who were pursuing political violence? Like, do you really think that first meeting like was all hugs and kisses? It was anything but that. I mean, a lack of trust between opposing sides is an inevitable feature of building peace, but you can't use it as a prerequisite or as a justification for not beginning the process. Another lesson they often learn is attempts to resolve the conflict through military force were ultimately futile and did not result in sustainable security for either community. So basically, we have this phrase here in the Northern Irish context, tit for tat killings, one of ours is killed, one of yours is killed. In reality, when dialogue was prioritised, and I really underline that with a kind of whoop, thick red line, we achieved security, Brie, when dialogue was prioritised and the root causes of the conflict were addressed. So in your space, if dialogue's got to be prioritised, it has to be prioritised in the context that we're willing to address the root causes of our conflict or our space in the United States at the moment, the same in the Middle East theatre, the same in the Irish theatre, rather than just use phrases that I often hear, can people just not get over it? The answer is no. Um, someone once said theologically, you can't repent of what is covered up. So to use that Greek word that you and I knew since we were younger, metanoia, turning around happens as long as you don't do a cover-up. So there's a there's an honesty, there's a there's a shining a light in dark spaces. Not to stay in those spaces forever, but at least to acknowledge those. And I suppose fifthly thing I often say is the role of civic society is absolutely key. You know, we talk about here the uh, political peace process versus the civic peace process. But Bri, as you look at your space and you know, I see the language in your space. I hear the abrasive attitudes, the distaste, the negativity towards the other. I mean, that language will eventually uh, radicalize people. Um, somebody was telling me, I don't know who it was, some person from the US, I may have been speaking today or the other day, where in some, in fact, it was, it was actually an archbishop from here I was speaking to today. And, there was some American clip, I think, in Arizona where people at a, I think, a board of governors ended up physically fighting in Arizona over Republican Democratic politics. And you're asking, I mean, I keep reminding people, Bray, as well, like politics is temporal. You know, faith is eternal. I mean, how do you, I mean, is there a way using a faith mechanism to begin to reasonably address some of these people's concerns? I mean, if not, then we've really made faith an instrument of politics in a way that will 
that it, it faith has been willing to be in many instances, um, but I don't think it's its highest order. I, I mean, one of the things that I love about religious traditions are the ways that it rem- calls us to some form of self-transcendence, right? Something larger than ourselves to be connected to that should help anchor us and also open us at the same time. And I feel a little bit like we've lost the sense of the self-transcendent. And so we talk about meaning in our individualistic lives. We'll talk about hope in our individual ways. Um, We can even create rituals that are kind of deracinated from anything. Uh, But the thing I think that makes faith different than any other form is its notion of self-transcendence. Right, that you are called to be part of something larger than yourself that is not controlled by you and that you're then accountable to in some way. Um, so I, I, I hope that religion is a way in which people can find meaning greater than themselves. It is willingly and often used as an instrument of hurt right, and an instrument of power and a a site for domination. One of my colleagues calls it church hurt, right, that calling religion into a space is not a neutral act because in many places it's the vehicle through which people are the most harmed. It it was true when I was thinking about those kids in East Africa. They were running a a religious youth organization that was advocating for a abhorrent position related to sexual violence against women. And that's not, and it was with the theological cover um, that that was being done. And so, you know, I know that you don't take a um, Pollyanna approach to religion because it's messy, right? Toxic religion is part of the mix that you always talk about related to Northern Ireland. And so it's not something that we can just call on willy-nilly because it it comes with plenty of baggage. At the same time, it also comes with plenty of resources um, and modes and ways to transmit knowledge to us that might break down um, some of these things. But uh, not, you know, it's not it's not just one or the other, right? It's both. That's the hard part about all of this is that uh, it takes a tremendous amount of discernment to navigate what tools you use in what space and what time. And I often think that people learn, we train, we give people capacity for the tools. We teach them about them. We try to perfect their skill around them. And the hardest part of all of this is to create a discerning lens about when you use what and for what end um, and a sort of ethical framework around which then you engage and you're not turned in one direction or another because uh, the culture decides that you know violence is acceptable now, or the culture decides that domination is what you need to do right now. It's so it's the skills and tools that are really necessary for us to cultivate, but it's the discernment about how to use them and when to use them, and then the ethical framework to ground us, or the moral sensibility to ground us in some way that ensures that we're accountable to something larger than just our more purient or group driven interests. Um, and that it's, I think it's really hard to feel effective in this broader culture when what you're talking about is doing something so countercultural. 
So how do you maintain your own resilience in this? And how do you create opportunities to heal and empower other people? Because I feel like those two things are connected, your own practices of it, and then the ability to extend that to other people. I, I offer me, Brett, I often ask, what are the alternatives? If people like you and I and many others listening into this don't do what we do, I mean, the thought of just giving in to absolute despair, as many people do, and people just go to their own spaces, close their doors, work in the assumption all will be well, and yet all will not be well. I mean, we need good people in difficult spaces. And I suppose going back to that sort of social peace process, I mean, I want to say, I don't want people looking at the two of us and saying, oh, so-called experts. I mean, we're not so-called experts. We've probably given a serious amount of our lives to this, but I think everyone who's listening, who's a passion for this, can actually be in this journey. And I suppose a lot of what I'm trying to do now, particularly as I grow older and will hopefully retire all being well and, you know, nine, 10 years time or thereabouts, I want to kind of give something away to the next generation. Um, to empower another generation, having learned the lessons painfully and living through a conflict. And that's why I think that social peace process is, is so, so important. I mean, politicians are key. And I mean, politicians being uh, uh, recognised tonight. But, you know, sometimes politicians, bless them, uh, can be people of short-term vision. I mean, many times politicians work in the assumption that, you know, once the deal is done or the negotiated settlement is signed that societal healing automatically follows. I mean, you and I know nothing could be further from the truth. And that's why one of the phrases a colleague of mine who's a professor at Queen's University, has been a friend for many years, talks about the fact that many times societal healing is ignored by negotiators that we work on once you sort out problematic politics, societal healing automatically follows. So we've got to say to people listening that everyone here has a part to play in this. And I guess that that, that empowers me and makes me realize that a, that a peace process or a healing process is actually the responsibility of all people who live in society as they emerge out of conflict. So social peace is my responsibility. It's Bree's responsibility. It's our listeners' responsibility. It's everyone's. It's not just the politicians. And it's just, and sometimes it's simple acts of engagement, of listening to the other. Tell me your story, what shaped you as a human being. To me, just makes such a significant difference. I mean, how do you see that in, in your world, in your space, in academia? I mean, you're an academic practitioner. You don't spend your life in the glorified, rarefied atmospheres of academia. Uh, you want your life to spill into disturbing places. But you could choose to stay in the rarefied atmosphere, but you don't, thankfully. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, because that sounds awful. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't sound very fulfilling at all. Um, I hope that people know that they can um, that they can exist in a lot of joy, um, and that they can bring a lot of joy to difficult work. And I think that healing comes. Um, yes, through the process of 
acknowledgement and of being seen and of having your voice be made visible and having a sense of agency, all of those things can help heal from past traumas, which ultimately, you know, if you think about what trauma is, it's the overwhelming of your personhood in a way, like something being done to you over which you have no control, whether that's interpersonal or that's societal. And so developing a sense of agency and giving people ways that they can not just feel powerful, but be powerful to me is one of the great antidotes to it. And also then letting go of the things that they don't need to be powerful over, right? A lot of people spend a, a lot of their time trying to just be okay with being themselves. Um, and so if you can release that uh, energy into something else, I think that's energy well spent. When I think about what needs to be done to heal people and empower communities, I often think about how taxing this work is and um, that a lot of people have been fighting for so long that the best thing that we can do for them is to create space for them to breathe freely. Um, and that also means to rediscover things like joy. Um, a lot of the trainings that I do, almost every training that I do, ends every evening with dancing. And sometimes that dancing is um, celebratory. Sometimes it's just the way to move your body so that you remember that you're really alive because you've been doing work that kind of makes you feel dead inside. And so I think that we have to bring a lot of joy into the work and not joy as an act of resistance, joy in an end in and of itself, because humans deserved things that are beautiful and joyful. Um, and so I hope that we can create a way of doing work that is beautiful. Uh, and that reminds people that there are, are things that are beautiful worth living for and contributing to. Um, and that ultimately the best that you can do as a human is to create a contribution, right? That you'll never really own anything, that everything that you make is impermanent, but you can contribute something uh, and your contribution will be really valuable over time because it's piled onto the contributions of many other people. Um, and so Gary, I, I think about the tremendous contributions that you have made to the variety of people's lives that you've touched, including mine. Um, and I just am so appreciative of your example and the work that you do um, and wonder if you have any final thoughts, what they can do or how they can be or what contribution that they can make to this work that you have pioneered. I think it's wild, we, you know, we met each other a number of years ago, had a long, long lunch and we've uh, stayed in touch ever since as well. And I think, you know, people need to realize that in this global village, we can all learn lessons from one another. I guess sort of referring back to that Palestinian-Israeli group that was with me who were pretty depressed when they arrived. They were not doing somersaults when they left. But I said in the first evening, which was a Sunday when they arrived, I said, if you can just leave this contested space, which still is contested, just saying maybe, just maybe it's possible. After five days, you're not going to go back and resolve the contested space of the Israeli-Palestinian theatre but maybe, just maybe. And I think what you're saying there, Brie, is just trying to engender some form of hope. Um, I've often said, looking at the Middle East, and sometimes looking at my space and your space, I mean, it's almost as if someone has put in a, a massive 
hoover and sucked the oxygen of hope right out of your space. I mean, I've Republicans and Democrats have said to me, it's going to be like this for a long time to come. I said, well, what can you do to make a difference? So how do you and I engender hope in the difficult spaces, or at least give belief? And I did remind those Palestinians and Israelis, uh, Margaret Thatcher, who was affectionately known as the Iron Lady, uh, Winston Churchill, who was known as the kind of British bulldog, uh, both of them said, the Irish problem is intractable. Now, we might not always have agreed with their politics, etc., etc., but they were both wrong. Because uh, very painfully, through good leadership, through people engendering hope. And it also needs to be said, let me say this to all your listeners, because I imagine they're both Republicans and Democrats listening into this space. Both Republicans and Democrats played a leading role in the Irish peace process. Because they engendered hope into very dark spaces. And I mean, I would appeal to your society, despite some of the disagreements that you and I have talked about profoundly tonight, that for people of goodwill on both sides, be they Republicans, Democrats, to give the leadership that's required to bring about healing in that nation. Not total agreement, but healthy disagreement, disagreeing well. Um, and just that even America needs a, a maybe, just maybe moment as well. A belief that this great nation that has shaped so much of this planet and most certainly has not got everything right. That has not happened in any nation. But they acknowledge the past and they try to rebuild an inclusive future that befits any nation that's functioning well, uh, spiritually, emotionally, physically and mentally. And I would say to every person listening, that's your job. Don't just leave it to people in Congress or in Senate or in the White House. No matter who is in that space, it's ordinary people in ordinary spaces shape this world and shape communities. And I think our role, Brie, painful and difficult and frustrating as it is, is to continue to breathe that oxygen of hope in the difficult contested spaces. I think, Brie, I didn't say this all in this because it probably maybe might have been a bit too controversial, though I have used this illustration on some courses I've been doing in the Carolinas and Georgia for Emory University. People have asked, like, how, how do you bring people into this conversation mm -hmm. and what does it look like? And I've tried to use the Capitol building uh, that happened on January the 6th. And because they're always saying that you know, you can't raise this. And I says, well, maybe you don't need to raise the Trump-Biden conversation. Maybe you don't need to do that. But I tried to say, look, in your churches, most synagogues, there's obviously Republicans and Democrats. That's the fabric of American society. But I'd be asking the question, I'm saying, look, I have been in your homes and many of your grandparents, great uncles fought against the scourge of Nazism. Everyone in your congregation will agree that that scourge had to be destroyed. But I would ask the question, when there were people outside that building wearing things like uh, Camp Auschwitz, uh, there was a gallows uh, like 10 metres from a, a cross, a religious symbol. There was someone had a T-shirt, 6MMJE, 6 million Jews were not enough. I mean, if people are doing that, 
in the name of politics, someone's got to press the pause button. Because I know my uncle who went in on the second day of D-Day, and I know relatives of yours, Brie, whom I don't know, and many other American people. They didn't sacrifice their lives for people to be propagating another Holocaust. So people just need to press the pause button and say, unless we're careful, where does this lead? That doesn't make you any less a Republican. Definitely not. But it most certainly makes you a more holistic, rounded human being. If you say, let's just revisit this, just in case. Because yeah. as you know, and I know, violence begets violence. And that's a sad concept of human nature. I think it's really important that people recognize that, um, that nobody's asking for perfection. I don't hold myself up to be an exemplar of anything, just a practitioner of it. And I think that we exist in a, in a world right now where criticism has its own currency, that people criticize rather than contribute. And that creates a sort of paralysis around actual action. It creates a, a paralysis around progress. And so the most important thing I think we can ask people to be is just practitioners, right? Don't be an exemplar. Don't hold yourself up as a model around uh, that other people have to emulate. Hold yourself to the sort of difficult position of just being a practitioner, of working through all of the difficulties that all of this entails uh, without really having anything um, exemplary to offer, just an example of what it means to deeply be committed to something with all of your flaws and difficulties of who you are as a person. So I, I don't want anybody to feel like I, that either, that, you know, that I'm particular in any kind of way, or that Gary, even though his career and his contributions have been immense, that he's some unattainable outside figure, right? The work that he does is work that he's done because of who he is and who he's what he's committed to. And it's also the work that many, many people have done that we don't know their names, we don't know who they are, because they've just decided to make a contribution to this world, making it better than what we inherited. And so I just think it's, it's an incredibly important note um, in all of this to not keep us in a culture of criticism, but keep us in a culture of possibility and of contribution. Because um, it's not going to be perfect how we get there, and it's not going to be perfect once we get there. But perfection isn't the goal. It's just better. Better is the goal. Um, and so the only way we get there is by taking the steps as messy and complicated as they are and without any waiting for it to be the right conditions or the right time or having all the right skills. We just have to do what we can with what we have in order to make it better. So it's been great dialoguing. Again, to thank our good colleagues in Newground for pioneering and doing what they're doing because they're creating spaces to allow what we call uncomfortable conversations to actually take place. <laughs>